Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, winners and losers from the Durban Climate Summit and learning how to adapt to weather extremes in a climate-changing world. How is sea level rise, driven largely by climate change, going to affect coastal communities? Are they going to get whacked? (laughs) Yes, but where? Is it going to whack your local hospital? Is it going to affect your evacuation routes? How plants, animals, and you will have to cope with the effects of climate change. Also, renewable energy powers a way out of poverty for Palestinian herders on the West Bank. With electricity, they will have light and they will have Hadada, which is the uh, electrical butter churning. And he's going to have television and the women can have a better time. They can rest better. Also, why bird feet don't freeze. Those stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. The recent U.N. climate summit in Durban, South Africa, went into double overtime, resulting in frayed tempers, bloodshot eyes, and what's being called the Durban platform. Essentially, there are three major pillars to the platform. Pillar one. Nations will negotiate a treaty by 2015 leading to a legally binding agreement requiring all countries to cut carbon emissions by 2020. Pillar 2. The current climate agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, is extended for five more years. But the U.S. never ratified Kyoto, and Canada is pulling out of the treaty. And finally, Pillar 3. The U.N. will create a green climate fund of $100 billion a year to help poor countries cope with climate change. But the Green Climate Fund is a fund without funds. There's no mechanism for raising the money. Johannes Erpelainen teaches political science at Columbia University. He says the Durban platform produced winners and losers. First of all, I think we can all agree that the global climate is one of the losers, that this is not the kind of agreement that is really solving the problem. You can clearly see that the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change are losers. So these African countries, the low-lying island nations. But at the same time, from a sort of political perspective, it seems to me that some of these negotiators are actually going back to their domestic constituencies and telling them that they've actually won. So the European Union interprets this as a historic uh, precedent because we, for the first time, have a real agreement to negotiate a global treaty. The United States says that it's a victory for them because they did not commit to anything unless China and India also act. And China and India say that it was a victory for them because they did not commit to anything until the industrialized countries have moved. So everybody's going back and saying that they got exactly what they wanted. Something for everybody, but meanwhile, um, the emissions go up and the temperatures go up as well. Exactly. Sometimes you get the sense when you look at these negotiations and you're you're not having a very good day, you get the feel that a lot of this is uh, more like a performance than a substantive negotiation. So what would you do? Uh, The United Nations, is that the forum for future negotiations? Is there an alternative? This is a difficult question, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what the sort of right way to go would be. 
I don't think the United Nations negotiations themselves are sort of directly harmful. I mean, they do create this legal system for a future commitments. And if they can mobilize some resources in this green climate fund, I think that could be very helpful because then developing countries would have much stronger incentives to participate in the system. But I do believe that it would be equally and probably even more important for sort of smaller groups of countries like the United States, the European Union, Japan, China, to begin working together, uh, not on some having some plan of a grand treaty 10 or 20 years from now, but begin deploying clean technology, energy efficiency, doing these kind of concrete small steps to change the way the energy game is played uh, in different places. So if there's something in the Durban platform for everybody, depending on your perspective, can we anticipate that the process is going to go on pretty much as it has? I think so, at least for a while, because now they again have another four years of breathing space. So they can now waste a few more years, not necessarily achieving much. Then I guess the pressure at some point will build up. And then depending on the political realities and economics and all that, at that time, either we will make meaningful progress, but either we make some progress or alternatively, we'll have a few more of these Copenhagen-Durban-style agreements where... Uh, they agree only on more negotiation. You're from Finland, right? Yes. What are they saying about the, the Durban platform in Finland? There's some interesting discussion there. So some groups, some environmental groups, uh, some commentators who have been following this for a long time have been quite disappointed, and they've highlighted the fact that we're already sort of moving far away from the idea of limiting uh, climate change or global warming two degrees Celsius, which is the sort of scientific basic goal that many of these groups endorse. But others have then said that it's a meaningful kind of continuation of the process. And these are often the people who have sort of strong belief in the United Nations, which, by the way, in small countries like Finland, often is a much stronger sentiment than, for example, in the United States. Well, Professor, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Johannes Erpelainen is an assistant professor of political science at Columbia University. Well, it seems that pledge that climate negotiators made two years ago in Copenhagen to keep global temperatures from rising more than two degrees centigrade over pre-industrial levels is a thing of the past. Scientists say it's nearly certain temperatures are going to be higher, and now the question is, can we adapt to a rapidly climate-changing world? Frank Lowenstein is the Climate Adaptation Strategy Leader for the Nature Conservancy. He's just back from the Climate Summit in Durban. Hi, welcome back. Thank you very much, Bruce. So what does the world that we need to adapt to look like? Well, we already are seeing climate changes. We've seen increases in precipitation on a global basis, and we've seen increases of global temperature. Those two trends are going to continue. We're also going to see an increase in climate extremes. So although precipitation is going to increase on a global basis, there may be places that get very dry and other places that get very wet and flooded. So extremes, heavier rainfall, floods, stronger winds, cyclones, hurricanes? Yes, yes, stronger hurricanes, an increase in severe thunderstorms. A new article just out suggests that by the end of the century, there'll be a doubling of the frequency of severe thunderstorm conditions on the east coast of the U.S. Great. So now I'm without hope. Uh, <laughs> how, how do I cope? How do we adapt to this changing world? 
Well, the first thing we need to do is to be conscious about the need to adapt and to start to put in place policies in our everyday lives, in our cities' plannings, in our state planning, and in our national policies to help us adapt. The Nature Conservancy believes that natural ecosystems have a very important role to play in helping us to adapt. We need to preserve key ecosystems that are providing services to people, which we may not even be aware of, that are helping us to adapt today. And then in some places, we need to restore ecosystems that have been degraded or lost. Let's talk about the ones we have to protect. How do we do that? Well, some of it is just putting the right incentives into place, and some of it is recognizing the values of those ecosystems. So we're sitting here in Somerville, Massachusetts. The water that we drink comes out of the Quabbin Reservoir, and the Quabbin Reservoir is kept very pure by the forests that surround that reservoir. And with more precipitation, which is what we're forecast to get here in Massachusetts, there will be more erosion, more sedimentation. You may need a larger buffer of forests. You may need to manage those forests differently so that they do a better job with the filtration. So are we doing those things now? Are we preparing for more precipitation and the reservoir going up? We are in the very early stages of doing this. There are some really good examples of places that are doing it. For example? So in the desert southwest, there's an effort which is thinking about how do we manage the national forests so that they continue to deliver clean water to the cities of the desert southwest, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Phoenix. So for example... Uh, last spring with the wildfires that took place that were so dramatic in the desert southwest and which, again, are in line with what we're expecting more of with climate change in that region, there was massive erosion of sediment and charcoal into the rivers that provide the water supply for Albuquerque. So if we manage the forest to reduce the risk of fire, go for a forest that has fewer, larger trees spread out more from one another, these are basic forest management techniques, we know how to do that, then we can reduce the risk of severe wildfire and at the same time capture more snow. By capturing more snow, we can preserve water flow into the summer longer, even as temperatures rise, and help further reduce the risk of wildfire. The Nature Conservancy has a program. You've been using satellite imagery of the Long Island Sound. What do you hope to do with that information? Sure. This is our coastal resilience project. It's really thinking about how is sea level rise driven largely by climate change and coastal storms driven by both climate change and just past history, how is that going to affect coastal communities? Are they going to get whacked? <laughs> yes, but where? And is it going to whack your local hospital? Is it going to affect your evacuation routes, your roads that you need to get people out of the way of hurricanes? Which houses are most vulnerable? So, all of those are questions that people need to know to start planning and that should affect local zoning so that we build new facilities, new hospitals, new schools in places that are not vulnerable. So there's things we can do to our environment to help us adapt to a changing world. What about wildlife that can't adapt? Well, there's a lot of thought going into that. And we're already seeing a movement north by animals and plants. We're seeing a shift in seasonality. We're seeing that plants come into flower earlier, birds return from their southern migration earlier and leave uh, later. So we're seeing plants and animals making changes on their own. 
sometimes we're going to get in the way of that. You know, if you're an owl, if your habitat has moved 100 miles north, you can fly over a city to that new habitat. If you're a snail, that's a tougher tougher task. So there's a lot of effort going into thinking about where are the suitable habitats going to be and how can we help plants and animals to reach them? How do we preserve maybe corridors that enable wildlife movement between natural areas? You mean a corridor, a way of getting a channel, basically, through an ecosystem? You know, it's it's more thinking about it not as a strict corridor, like we're going to put up a fence and plant forest linking to another one. But maybe what we're going to do is figure out a way to reduce the ecological contrast so that you know, the farms and, and second-growth forests are more like the older forest. And so the plants and animals that live in that older forest are able to move into the surrounding area and diffuse through to the next large forest block. Have you ever thought of what you're personally going to do if your place where you live has weird extreme weather? Uh, absolutely, yes. I live in western Massachusetts. In the last couple of years, we've seen terrible ice storms that left people without power for over a week in many cases, and then huge tree damage that again left people without power for up to a week after the October snowstorm. And also Hurricane Irene left some people without power for days and and up to a week. So, you know, we're seeing those kind of climate extremes changing things in our community. My wife and I are thinking about putting in a couple of wood stoves in our house as a backup source if power goes out. And we have already put in solar panels to help generate electricity uh, and create a more diffuse electrical network. If instead of being dependent on a few large power plants, if we have dispersed power sources across a larger area, that's likely to be more resilient. Well, Frank Lowenstein, thank you so very much for coming in. Thank you, Bruce. Happy to have been here. Frank Lowenstein is the Climate Adaptation Strategy Leader for the Nature Conservancy. ahead, it was a year the EPA took its lumps, and not just from coal. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. This has been a year when the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency could have used some protecting itself. Republicans cheered when President Obama overruled the EPA's proposed tough new standards for smog last fall. The president, citing regulatory burdens and the cost to the economy, sent the regs back to the EPA for more study. But his decision set environmental groups seething. They cited studies that reducing smog would save tens of billions of dollars in health care costs and prevent 12,000 premature deaths. Ire was also directed at the EPA when the agency raised environmental concerns about the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. It's designed to carry tar sand oil from Canada to Gulf Coast refineries. President Obama punted again, ordering the EPA to review the project and come up with an answer by 2013. All in all, it's been a busy, contentious year for the EPA. Erica Martinson covers the agency for the news organization Politico. EPA was big business this year. Big focus on fuel economy for cars this year. And some interaction between EPA and the Department of Transportation and the auto industry. Yeah, that fuel economy story didn't get a lot of play. Uh, Basically, the Obama administration was raising the stands to, what, 54 and a half miles per gallon by 2020, yeah? 
Yeah, they do done a lot uh, to encourage some trucks that have better fuel economy. That's something quite new. But it, it did seem sort of to slide by in the national eye. What other stories stood out? Well, uh, fracking has been pretty big this year. There's a lot of fracking stories. It's really not just one, but the Marcellus Shale sort of changes the game for natural gas in America, which changes the game a lot for EPA in the way they decide to do certain air emission rules. The price of natural gas gone down so dramatically that it opens it up for a lot more options for regulating utilities and power plants. But they haven't made the standards. They haven't enforced uh, things in terms of fracking, have they? Well, they're doing a lot of research. <laughs> um, EPA is also working on some rules that would regulate the disposal of fracking fluid and all the sorts of stuff that gets pulled back and, and there's concern about it going to wastewater treatment plants or ending up in local streams. A lot of decisions like this were kind of like non-decision in a sense. I'm thinking of the uh, Keystone Pipeline decision. Yes. That was another big environmental story this year. EPA was one of the key critics of the pipeline decision. Uh, They never turned in their final environmental impact statement. The White House pulled back that decision before it happened as well. Basically, they punted and said, well, we're going to need some more information. Yes. We'll talk about it after the election. You know, Erica, the EPA has really been a lightning rod for the administration. Maybe a punching bag for the Republicans might be a better metaphor. It sure has. <laughs> um, that's been a huge focus of the House GOP this year. Not as much in the Senate. Most of the House jobs bills are largely tied to EPA, um, either rolling back various EPA regulations um, or just largely cutting back their ability to regulate at all. Well, the smog ruling really was, I think, the big one, because that's the one where President Obama basically said, no, it's jobs, it's the economy, not science, that's going to determine how we enforce this regulation. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I expect we'll see a lot more of that jobs versus environment coming up in the next year. The president has taken a lot of heat from his base because of some of the decisions that he's uh, overruled at the EPA. Yeah, the ozone decision was pretty tough for him. Uh, I think that one might argue that uh, his turnaround on Keystone could be tied into getting some of that base back. And I I think that they're pretty primed to come out with some mercury rules for power plants that they're probably hoping will shore up that base a little more and, and bring back the environmentalists into the fold for the Obama camp. Yeah, it seems like there's going to be a big announcement by the EPA about mercury. Uh, yes, EPA is about to announce their rule for mercury air emissions at utilities and power plants. It's one of the bigger rules they've ever done. It's going to cover a lot of coal-fired power plants, which means all the older coal-fired power plants that are 30, 40, 50 years old that haven't been as tightly regulated in the past, a lot of them are going to shut down. So that's caused quite a bit of drama here on the Hill. It's also uh, caused quite a big fight over how it's going to affect electricity reliability. EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson has had a very tough and, I think, frustrating year. I think there were a lot of people on the Hill would uh, just as soon put a lump of coal in her stocking. <laughs> That's true. She has had a difficult go of it, both inside the administration and also, you know, on the Hill, there's kind of nothing she can do uh, correct. I mean, that's not new to EPA. There's almost nothing they ever do that they don't get sued over. Has Lisa Jackson expressed frustration? Well, she she's a little more balanced in her public conversation. She's certainly frustrated, I think, with the level of discussion about EPA as a job-killing agency. She's fought back in recent months going on 
a bit of a media tour, but she's lost a few battles in her own administration. She's had a pretty difficult year, and it was just announced this week, actually, that one of her closest personal advisors, Seth Oster, announced that he was uh, heading off to the private sector. So I wouldn't wonder if that's not a sign of things to come. Well, what, what's the um, fate of the EPA budget look like? Well, they're up against some cuts. I think that their latest numbers I saw were they're going to lose about $300 million in the budget that may or may not be passed very soon here. And they, like everyone else, are up for a lot of automatic spending cuts come 2013 since the Super Committee failed to achieve their goals. It's a little unclear as of yet uh, how much EPA is going to lose, but there can be a fairly convoluted process that can allow uh, Congress to aim at specific agencies, particularly when there's not a budget. So EPA could be up for quite a bit more trouble. Erica Martinson is an energy reporter. She covers the EPA for Politico. Erica, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, for 20 years, the EPA has been wrestling with regulating mercury. Most of the mercury in the environment comes from coal-fired power plants. And today, one baby in six in the U.S. is born with dangerously high levels of the neurotoxin. Now the EPA is at last launching its new standards, and a religious coalition is adding its voice to the debate. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. An alliance of Catholics and evangelical Christians opposed to abortion has been pressing EPA to set limits on mercury to protect the neurological development of babies in utero. It's airing ads like this in seven states. Coal-burning power plants in our region have helped raise mercury levels in our waters, threatening the unborn with permanent brain damage. That's why I'm counting on Senator Alexander to defend the EPA's ability to protect the unborn from mercury pollution. The ads were produced by the Evangelical Environmental Network. Reverend Mitchell Hescox is president. He says 100 other faith leaders, the National Association of Evangelicals, and the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops have signed on. Reverend Hescox and colleagues have visited the offices of dozens of members of Congress in recent years to lobby on the issue, saying, If their faith is important to them and life is important to them, shouldn't you be concerned about what mercury does to our unborn children. The issue of fetal health is not the only reason they've become involved in the mercury issue. The fact that 40% of the country's lakes and rivers are contaminated with mercury, which rains out of the atmosphere and is taken up by fish, is also moving people. So we're just poisoning our God's creation, and we're taking away the things like family fishing, recreational activities that many of us have enjoyed who are natural outdoors people. Many coal-fired power plants have already invested in the equipment that removes mercury from their emissions. The EPA says new rules would eliminate more than 90 percent of what remains. And an alliance of evangelical and Catholic voters with children's health advocates is a development that could prove formidable in pushing for action on pollution issues. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. You can hear the full interview with Mitchell Hescox at our website, LOE.org. For some Palestinians in Bedouin communities on the West Bank, hurting is a way of life, and so is poverty. Residents have limited access to water, electricity, and food. But a group of Israelis and Palestinians is trying to make a difference, and renewable technology is the key. Zach Rosen has our story. 
It's not that Israeli Dalia Shaham doesn't care about the prospects of Palestinian statehood. She does. If this were three years ago, she'd be following any sort of geopolitical development very closely. But today... Most of the discourse is about one state or two states. You know, where will the border cross? And that, I find, is one of the least important questions if you're thinking about what peace would look like and how people are going to live. Dahlia's idea of what's important changed after she became disillusioned with her job at a think tank that advises the Israeli government on policy planning. The question is how people actually live and how their interests are taken care of and how they find ways to cooperate. And actually doing that work and finding out how this cooperation can take place and what, is, what are the limits also of that cooperation is what I'm involved in now. So going into the West Bank is no problem. I'm driving with Dahlia from Tel Aviv down to the West Bank, to South Mount Hebron, where it's sunny and rocky and pristine. On our way to a small village called Thale, we pass several Jewish settlements, as well as young boys riding donkeys behind herds of sheep. It's kind of like the western outskirts of Hebron. At least once a week, Dahlia drives from her home in Herzliya, near Tel Aviv, into South Mount Hebron. I am the development manager for Comet Me. Comet Me stands for Community Energy and Technology in the Middle East. And what they do is build and install wind turbines and solar panels in small Palestinian and Bedouin villages. Thale, like a lot of villages in this area, is made up of just about a dozen or so families. The people here live in shanty-like tents or caves. That's why they're known as cave dwellers. A lot of them are in constant struggle to be able to hold on to the lands where they've been living for dozens of years that are being encroached on by settlement activity or military activity. From where I'm standing on the top of a hill on the outskirts of the village, I can see an electric line just a few hundred meters away. But the people here, mostly herders, don't have access to that energy. I mean, in order to understand the political complications that deprive these people from electricity, you need to understand the structure of the Oslo Accords that divided the West Bank into Area A, Area B, and Area C. Area A is under full control of the Palestinian Authority. Area B is under civilian control of the Palestinian Authority, but security control, military control of Israel. And then there's Area C, where Thale is, along with 62% of the West Bank. And it's in Area C where the Israeli settlements are. Area C is under full control of the Israeli civil administration and military. So these communities that are in Area C... She's talking about the Palestinian and Bedouin communities. They cannot receive services from the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority has no authority to supply services. And they do not receive services from the Israeli civil administration. And so, since some of these rural communities don't have access to electricity, Comet exists as a way for them to get it. These are batteries that are specifically designed for solar applications for off-grid, so chemistry is specifically adjusted for that. That's Elad Orion. He and another Israeli physicist founded Comet in 2009. Today they have eight employees, half Israeli and half Palestinian. This is Jamil Awad. He's 47 years old and has lived in Thale for his entire life. He wears chunky brown work boots and a blue keffiyeh on his head. Mm-hmm. He said that with the electricity they, they, they will have light and they will have khadada, which is the uh, butter churning, electrical butter churning. And he's saying we're going to have television and, uh, and the women can have a better time and they can, and they can rest better. Mm-hmm. 
In Thale, goats and sheep are the community's lifeblood. If you have extra money, you buy sheep, so you can, you know, it produces dairy products. They hardly do anything with the wool, but it's mostly dairy production, and then selling the sheep off as meat, too. Before they had electricity, the women here would spend up to three hours manually churning butter with the skin of a goat. But now they can buy electric butter churners, saving lots of time and energy. And before electricity, there was nowhere to store their freshly churned butter, so it would usually turn into soup by the time it got to market. But now they can store it in their refrigerators. Comet has installed mini-grids in over a dozen communities so far. And in those villages, they say the electricity has increased the community's income by as much as 70%. That's a big deal here, in one of the poorest regions of the world. Since Thale sits at the bottom of a valley, Comet hasn't installed wind turbines here, just 30 solar panels. And now that they've been installed, Ala Kawasmi, a Comet employee from Ramallah, leads a workshop with the residents. He explains the do's and don'ts of their new hookup. Then he hands out a laminated chart with text and pictures. It shows that it's okay to use cell phone chargers, refrigerators, and light bulbs, but the use of tea kettles and warm water washing machines will suck up too much energy. In South Mount Hebron, even if occupation ends tomorrow and the Palestinian state starts expanding its national grid, it would still take years before they actually reach those communities. More than once, Dahlia mentions her role here in the West Bank. She's here because she and Comet have knowledge and technology they want to transfer. And you need to have an exit strategy. And that's why in the future... Comet hopes to move toward being run almost entirely by Palestinians. You need to, to develop this in a way that you can not be there anymore and that can keep going. So after the workshop, someone from Thale will emerge as the electricity manager for their community. They'll be taught basic diagnostic care and upkeep for the system, and each household will pay a utility bill, which goes toward subsidizing the cost of the program. In this work, my favorite thing about it is that I'm not bothered by the question, I mean, I am bothered by the question, but it's not part of my work to, to, to talk about whether there's going to be peace or there's going to be conflict. I'm in an island of peace. That's where I work. And I'm not there because I'm Israeli and they're Palestinian. I'm there because I have a functioning organization that provides them service. And as long as the poverty gap exists in this region of the world... Dahlia wants her work to involve the people who are marginalized the most. For Living on Earth, I'm Zach Rosen. We have these updates and listener feedback from two stories we recently aired. When one of the huge trees in the Sequoia National Forest in California fell, blocking a path, we asked, what should they do with the lumbering giant? Mary Jo Graham listens on WBFO in Buffalo and wrote, let it decompose and provide food and shelter to other species. Drill a tunnel through the trunk was a favorite suggestion, and Bill Pokinghorn, who listens to our podcast in Maryland, had this idea. Cut the tree to produce large round tables. Use one of the tables at the visitor center so the visitors could count the rings. Auction off the other tables to the highest bidders, such as law firms, corporations, or convention centers. Use the proceeds from the sale to support the park service. Well, it's the Forest Service that made the call, and it decided to just leave the sequoia where it fell and build a boardwalk around it. 
And we got an earful from listeners who cried foul when it came to our judge's choice for a jingle for the fish, Asian Carp, rebranded as Silverfin. The final selection didn't mention Silverfin. Mea Carpa. You can hear all the jingles at our website, LOE.org. And keep the feeding frenzy coming. At our website, you'll also find our new survey about our show. Let us have it. Coming up, it's raining on Santa's parade. His reindeer are threatened. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, helping city-bound kids explore and enjoy wild places they'll later strive to protect. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. To measure and calculate the flow of ocean currents, scientists use a simple device called a drifter. It's a little float carrying a satellite tracking unit. But as Ari Daniel Shapiro reports, drifters play a big role for lobstermen who use them and the students who build them. Each drifter has a story to it. The story of the drifter project starts with this guy, Jim Manning. He's an oceanographer with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And Manning's the one who thought up the idea of partnering with a variety of community colleges to design and build drifters, drifters that could be used by the colleges for their own research and to facilitate the science of oceanographers elsewhere. Manning leads me outside. Oh, we're just going out to the storage barn here where I keep all my junk and uh, assorted parts of drifters. He shoves open the door to reveal a large warehouse filled with metal shelves piled up with all sorts of salt-encrusted equipment. I should clean this out someday. We walk down one of the aisles and dust off some gear. Let's see if we have any parts. These are one of the older units. Simple flotation with uh, stainless hardware. Fiberglass uh, rods that uh, hold the sails together. There are a handful of different drifter models here. The ones being built these days are made from PVC piping, cantaloupe-sized styrofoam floats, and flexible plastic sheets or sails. The sails wrap around the PVC skeleton, kind of like a hoop skirt, and give the current something to push against. The flotation is rigged to get the drifter to hang at a particular depth, at the surface, say, or five meters underwater. A few weeks later, on a cold, bright morning, I'm standing near the dock at Southern Maine Community College, or SMCC. A team's getting ready to take a boat out a short ways to drop a couple of drifters into the water. Brian Tarbox is part of that team. He's a faculty member at SMCC and a former lobsterman. Tarbox unfurls a map, showing me where we're headed. So here we are, right here on the South Portland shore. What we're looking for is to get the uh, drifters out past Cape Elizabeth. We start them off in Huzzy Sound. Huzzy Sound's got a pretty good current on the going tide. They'll have to run through the gauntlet of, of lobster gear. 
I mean, how, how do you steer around that? Do you just hope, kind of? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Drifters move passively with the currents. They can't be guided once they're set afloat. So the drifters might snag or get entangled on the lobster gear scattered all over the sound. But as long as they steer clear of all of that, then they'll provide tracks of where the currents are flowing and where the water's moving. Each drifter's got a small GPS transmitter glued to it that relays its position via satellite for remote tracking. Tom Long is the science lab manager at SMCC. Students who come on to the project are asked to help design and build these units that are going to be used by researchers, not just by us. What the students get out of that from a practical point of view is how to think about design, how to put that design into action, into reality, and then there's just the physical skills of learning how to build things, you know, use a table saw, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and are you uh, nervous about anything, or is there anything to, to be concerned about today? Today? No, the only thing I'm nervous about today is the transmitters, to be honest with you. They've been a little quirky for us lately, and so I'm going to be very anxious within the next hour or two to see that we're actually getting good fixes. That's what I'm nervous about. Other than that, have a good trip. Thanks, see Tom. You when you get back. See you then. Are we all set? All set. Great. Catherine, could you get that line? As we motor out towards Hussey Sound, Catherine Chipman, one of the students involved with the project, points out a couple of landmarks. That's Fort Gorgeous right over there. I think that's Peaks Island. So um, can you tell me, you, you've been involved with helping to build some of the drifters as well? I did for a short period of time, but then my school schedule didn't really allow me to work on them too much. These days, Chipman's working on a research project, using the data from some of the drifters she used to build. The drifters we're deploying today are going to be used by a professor at SMCC to teach about local currents in his oceanography class. Tarbox steers the boat to the deployment location. One of the drifters is to float at the surface, and the other is to drift about five meters down. We ready? I guess so. I think I'll put this in first. The drifters are on their way pretty quickly, and Kerala Mia, a technician who helped to build them, is delighted. <laughs> well, that's trucking along pretty good, isn't it? What are you thinking? Does it look good? Looks very good. And it's nice to be able to see the two side by side and compare how they're floating for right now. We'll have to see what happens here. We watch the drifters move off for a couple of minutes. Then Tarbox guides us expertly back to the dock. I turn back to Lalamia. So what's it like to kind of come out here and say goodbye to them, to kind of put them in the water and set them free? (laughs) It's always very exciting. I like to be part of coming out here to let them go. I've worked on them for so long, and it's just great to see them go out. When we get back to the dock, a tall, trim local lobsterman named Elliot Thomas is waiting for us. We walk inside, and he explains what all this has to do with his line of work. There seems to be a trend over the last 10 years of, of getting fishermen involved in science. Did the lobstermen pretty much know why these drifters are out there? Those who follow uh, do know. I mean, the movement of the drifters can indicate movement of lobster larvae before they settle. So it's a good thing for people to know. By tracking ocean currents, the drifters can also say something about how fish and clam larvae get dispersed, where invasive crabs might end up, or the path that waste might take coming from a power plant. 
These drifters even helped keep track of the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Before leaving campus, I dropped by Thomas Long's office to make sure the transmitters on those two drifters we deployed are working okay. As you can see, we've got two relatively new pings off of our drifters, which is a good thing. <laughs> so, so this must be kind of exciting. I mean, this is exciting for me. I mean, we just went out on the boat yeah. uh, to, d- to put these things in the water, and you're already getting data right here in your lab. Well, I get excited every time we do it, <laughs> and it engages the students, too. It's like you learn one thing and then you keep wanting to know more about it because there's really no end. It's like Mm. seeing something interesting and then like being like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And then actually getting to like really try and figure it out. I think that's awesome. It's almost like having pets out there that you can watch, you know. (laughs) People get very interested in it and following it and where they're going. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Our story, Adroitly Adrift, comes to us from Ocean Gazing, a podcast about our seas produced by Cozy Now. To learn more about Ocean Gazing and its new teaching curriculum, drift over to our website, LOE.org. Baby, it's cold outside, but birds don't get nervous when the temperatures drop. They don't get cold feet. Bird Notes' Michael Stein tells the tale. Have you ever watched ducks walking around in freezing temperatures and wondered how they keep their feet from freezing? The ducks seem oblivious to the cold, even as they stand on ice-covered lakes and streams. Or perhaps you've been concerned that the tiny feet of songbirds will freeze to metal perches. Unlike our feet, birds' feet are little more than bone, sinew, and scale, with very few nerves. But it takes more than a lack of nerves to keep their feet from freezing. A miraculous adaptation called Reti Mirabili is responsible. This fine, net-like pattern of arteries that carry warm blood from the bird's heart is interwoven with the veins carrying cold blood from the feet and legs. This interweaving warms the cold blood in these veins before it reaches the bird's heart. This system keeps the bird's legs and feet warm, even without leggings and slippers. And those little songbird's feet? Don't worry. Bird's feet lack sweat glands and stay dry, so there's no danger of them freezing to metal perches. What was that called again? Riti Mirabili. Mirabile Dictu. That's Michael Stein of Bird Note relating something wonderful about birds and cold feet. To see some photos of birds standing up to the cold, make tracks to our website, hellooey.org. Well, tis the season. Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Had a very shiny nose. Rudolph had a hard life at the start, but his leadership abilities shine through. Then how the reindeer loved it as they shouted out with glee. They said, Rudolph, you red nose reindeer. You go down in history. 
Sadly, Rudolph could soon be history. Some populations of reindeer, also known as caribou, certainly don't have a bright future. That's according to Jeff Flocken. He's head of U.S. policy for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. These are the ones that people probably have in their mind when they're thinking of Santa's reindeers because they're closest to the North Pole. The two species that we're most concerned with, the uh, Peary and the Dolphin Union populations, are the northernmost caribou. And they're found in northern Canada, on the Victoria Island, and um, other islands up there at the top. got to ask you, do they have red noses? <laughs> None that I've seen. Um, <laughs> the species that we work, uh, what we're talking about today, like the Peary, are probably smaller than most people think of in terms of caribou. They're very light-colored, kind of white and uh, with a dense fur. And then the Dolphin Union ones are a little bit darker. Um, they have the velvet covering their antlers. They're beautiful animals, but the glowing nose, I haven't seen that. <laughs> so now we've got these two uh, populations. One's called Union Dolphin and the other's called Piri, right? Correct. And they've, they've got problems. They're in serious trouble. Um, well, caribou across the world, they're all found in the northern hemisphere and these cold temperatures are declining. They think an average of about almost 60% decline from historic highs. And these that are in the most northern part are even in more trouble. During the last few winters, they've found mass die-offs of the Peary ones in particular. Up to 84% of the population is think to have been lost. Why is this happening? Do we know? It's climate change. Uh, the temperature, the weather, and the landscape are all changing in the Arctic. So in particular with this species, they're a browsing species, and they need to have access to the different plants and native shrubs that grow in the tundra where they, they are in the winter. So usually, in past times, there's kind of a light, you know, fluffy snow that falls in that region. But now because of the temperature change, they tend to have a heavy, icy rain. And what's happening is it's freezing over these plants. So the reindeer can't access them for food. And what's happening, they're starving or they're expending too much energy trying to find food. As a result, starvation, malnutrition, low reproductive rates, um, and that's causing these die-offs. Wow. Are they endangered? Yes. Uh, well, that's a great question. In Canada, on the Species at Risk Act, which is equivalent of our own Endangered Species Act, Peary are listed as endangered. Uh, they're considered a species in imminent danger of extinction. And the Dolphin Union are considered a species of special concern. What the International Fund for Animal Welfare, why work, is doing is we petitioned in September 2009 to get the U.S. to list the species as endangered or threatened under the U.S. Endangered Species Act. If Canada is taking care of this, why does the United States have to get involved? The U.S. Endangered Species Act, which is considered one of the best laws in the world for protecting species, has the ability to list domestic or foreign species. Currently, we have about 2,000 species on the list, of which 607 are foreign. In this case, again, pulling attention to the fact that climate change is most likely going to be the leading driver of extinction during our lifetime for species. And every time a species like polar bear or caribou or the ice-dependent seals or Pacific walrus is continuing to decline from climate change, we're hoping that the more attention that goes through this, the more that people change their habits and the more that the international community tries to address the problem of climate change. So by putting them on the endangered species list, the United States endangered species list, you could perhaps offer them protection, but against climate change? How, how would that work? Well, that's, you know, that's a good question. The U.S. Endangered Species Act, the Obama administration has chosen to follow the Bush administration's lead and is not using that as a way to regulate the impact of climate change due to actions here in the U.S. 
But every time that we learn more about different species that are declining because of climate change, you know, it opens up the opportunity to bring back that discussion, to try to have international laws that will really start addressing meaningfully the things that we are doing that contribute to climate change and global warming. So the Obama administration is not using the Endangered Species Act to respond to the effects of uh, the impacts of climate change. Correct. They will not regulate carbon emitting processes because of the Endangered Species Act. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to celebrate Christmas and they're going to have reindeer on their lawns. You know, they're going to be singing Rudolph. And I'm wondering um, how many of them appreciate the fact that these animals are so endangered. Yeah, what we hope to do is that they think about what they do. And instead of driving to the local grocery store, maybe they'll walk. They'll think about getting more fuel-efficient cars the next time they purchase one and making individual choices that will ensure that reindeer stay for the future, that Santa has a full team of reindeer driving across the sky. And also, of course, that decision makers and governments really start looking hard at what's causing climate change and help species like reindeer, polar bears, certain whales, Arctic foxes, all these animals that are being impacted by a warming climate. Jeff Flocken is head of U.S. policy for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Jeff, thank you so very much, and uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas, YouTubers. Do you believe that reindeer can fly up and away? How else could Santa go all over? We leave you this week in the midst of a winter festival parade in Calivrisi, Greece. Bagpipers lead the crowd down the winding streets of this village in Greek Macedonia. Boys and men follow wearing bells on their traditional costumes. Stephen Feld recorded their pipes, bells, and whistles for his CD, Bells in Winter Festivals, Greek Macedonia. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja. With help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. And today we bid a very fond farewell to our terrific interns, Rafaela Benin and Jack Rodolico. We hope it's been as much fun for you as for us. All the best, guys. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurge-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.